This week we're uh, picking up, as we tend to do always, uh, where we left off last week. We're in the Gospel of John, and uh, this week we'll be turning into chapter 5. And uh, I wanted to, this recounts for us a healing that Jesus accomplishes. Now, I've read the Bible since I was a little boy, and I have to be honest, all the healings that Jesus does used to just run together in my mind. And I had this conception in my brain that if I read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's just story after story of Jesus doing this healing and that healing and this healing and that healing. And then he's crucified and he rises from the dead. Um, but there's a reason why the Gospel writers here this morning, John, picked this particular healing to record. Now, one of my very favorite verses in the Gospel of John is the very last one. Chapter 21, verse 25, it says... Uh, he basically says, uh, I couldn't write everything that Jesus did down. He says, in fact, if I were to write everything that he did down, I suppose the whole world would not have enough room for all the books that would be written. And so we read something like that, and we realize that Jesus did a lot of things. He talked to a lot of people. He, uh, he, he gave grace to a lot of people. And John only records a handful in his gospel. And so when he records the specific details of a healing or a conversation, it's for a reason. It's because it, it points out something specific to us about who Jesus is. So I wanted to say that ahead of us reading this passage. Um, so that the healings don't just blur together. Um, the details are, are, are different from each one to each one. And those details show us particular things about who Jesus is and what he's about. So with that said, we're going to be in John chapter 5, the first nine verses. Um, so, And I wanted to say this before we read, too. You'll see that I have it, uh, a section of it bracketed off. Look at uh, verse 3 into verse 4. So um, there, there's a section here, this verse, in the very first uh, copies of the New Testament we have, the very earliest ones from the, from the, uh, the, the, the early, early church. Those verses are not there. They were added later, kind of written in by folks who were copying down. And I think they were written in to kind of describe the scene a little bit better. But I wanted to bracket them off so you know those are not in the actual original, original texts, the earliest ones. So, but I'll be referencing that a little bit later. So with that said, this is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, uh, and is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. 
Father, I thank you for your word, that in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about, and so a glimpse of who we are in you. In these moments, I pray that you would work by your spirit to reveal to us the majesty and the beauty and the glory of Jesus, that our hearts might cling to him by faith, to receive your grace, to build our identity there. Transform us now into his image that we might walk as his disciples in this world. Pray all this in his name. Amen. So I read an article a few years ago. I love the Olympics. I love it every four years. Suddenly I become an expert in gymnastics and get really into it and then more gymnastics the rest of the time. But I love the Olympics. You may remember in 2016 it was in Rio, Brazil. It was a big deal. Rio had just hosted um, the World Cup. And so they had these two kind of back-to-back huge events that they were hosting. And I remember reading... Um, some articles leading up to the Olympics uh, written by people who lived in Rio. And as you probably know, when cities and countries host the Olympics, they do a ton of production uh, planning ahead of time. They have to build arenas. They have to build the Olympic Village where all the uh, athletes are going to stay. They have to uh, put in all these kind of different things. And what the people in Rio that were writing these articles were saying is that what the government in Brazil was like, essentially doing was uprooting thousands of people that lived in Rio, uh, destroying these neighborhoods, these homes, these businesses, to move these people out to build arenas. Um, And even if they weren't building arenas, they were moving them out to build, you know, condo complexes where people would come and stay during the Olympics. And thousands of people wound up being displaced. And of course, uh, it's probably no surprise to us, the people that were displaced were the people in deep poverty, the people who had kind of been, uh, were maybe the folks that the government in Rio wouldn't want the cameras of all these uh, uh, news companies that were going to be coming in for the Olympics to see. So all these folks displaced and moved out, taken away from places where they sometimes lived for generations, all in preparation uh, for the global community to descend on Rio for three weeks. Um, and, you know, as, as I just said, what, why did the Brazilian government do that? Well, what do we do when we're having company come over? We want to clean up, right? We want it to seem like our bathroom and our kitchen spotless, that we never actually use it. Um, we want our house to look like a, <laughs> like a fusion restaurant in, in, in a metro city. It's clean. It's pristine. We don't want to be seen as people that actually uh, wear our clothes or use our towels. We want it to look really nice. Um, So I want you to imagine with me, 2016, that the NBC cameras with Bob Costas, who's the main announcer there at the Olympics, shows up in Rio. And instead of going to the arena for the opening ceremonies, what he does is he takes a lift. And he goes to the place where all these folks have been displaced and put Instead of going to the Olympic Village, where all the athletes are, he goes to the place that the folks in Rio don't want you to see. He goes to the place where all these people had been shoved off to the side so that all the visitors to Rio wouldn't be bothered by seeing them. In our passage, Jesus does something kind of like that. Jesus arrives into a very crowded Jerusalem, It's packed with people. 
And if you remember, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, it was the very first time it's recorded for us that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And what does he do? He goes to the temple, and he drives out the money changers, the people that had set up shop there in the temple courts who were making money off the back of people who were coming to worship. They were charging them outrageous rates and taking advantage of these people who were there to worship. They were basically charging a fee to access to God. Um, so that's what Jesus did the first time he was in Jerusalem. That's a big public spectacle. He walked into the temple, the most beautiful building in the city, and did this. And here in John chapter 5, this is the next time that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. So we might expect him maybe to go back to the temple. We might expect him to walk, march down to City Hall or something like that. But no, he goes to maybe a surprising place. He goes to a place that most people would have avoided altogether. He walks into this place of poverty and sickness. And when it's described for us here, and it says a pool. This isn't a pristine, beautiful, uh, you know, water park or something. <laughs> Think highway underpass in a major American city. This is the place you route people from. You keep them from going there because it's the, the sights and the smells that you don't want people coming into your city to see that the officials there would have been desperate to cover over and hide. And we watch, we watch Jesus in this passage walk into this place to encounter this one man. And in this encounter that's recorded for us, point us to what the light Jesus can do to the places that we're so desperate to cover over and hide. So in verse 1, back to the text. Jesus returns to Jerusalem for the first time since cleansing the temple. And we don't know when, it just says it's one of the Jewish festivals. Um, and the Jewish festivals were a big deal. There were three times a year when people would descend upon the city of Jerusalem. Now, at the time, the city of Jerusalem was about 40,000 people, regular population. But when the festivals would happen, it would swell up to a couple hundred thousand people. So it was like, you know, a beach town. Only 900 people live in a beach town, but then there's you know, 50,000 people in the middle of the summer. It was kind of like that. Suddenly, tons of people arriving into the city. And Jesus goes to this rather unexpected place. In verse 2, it says it was a pool near the sheep gate. Now, this was the, sh this was the gate through which the uh, sheep that were raised and kept in the hills surrounding Jerusalem would have been brought into the city to go to the temple. So this is not the, like, grand entrance. This, this place probably stinks. <laughs> it's mainly used to bring sheep into the city. So it, it, this is the back door. This is the back door, back door that you don't take people through when they're coming to visit the city. Jesus goes to this, uh, th this pool, and it says it was called Bethesda. Now, Bethesda is an interesting word, because Bethesda is a word that, depending on which language you're hearing, has a couple different meanings. Now, if you're hearing, if you're Hebrew, and you hear the word Bethesda, it means house of mercy. And that's a beautiful thought, house of mercy, Bethesda. But as John points out, you may have noticed, he says it was called Bethesda in Aramaic. Now at the time of Jesus, Aramaic had become the language of the people there. It was the common language that had kind of taken over. It was the language that Jesus would have spoken every day in the market, every day at home. It was the language that most of the people there arriving in Jerusalem would have spoken outside of worship. It was their common tongue. And the same word that means house of mercy in Hebrew, which is 
probably what that was originally named there in that part of the city. In Aramaic, it means house of shame. It's house of shame. Which is interesting. It's fascinating that these two, this one sound can have two different meanings depending on how your ears hear it. And I think the, uh, the gospel writer is pointing out to us that it's called Bethesda in Aramaic because there's a sense in which this place that was originally called House of Mercy had come to take on a different meaning as it had become the place where the, uh, the people who were in deep poverty and sickness were kind of shoved into as people are descending upon the city. It become, had become a house of shame, a house of shame, a place to be avoided. And we see this tension in the text. The passage tells us that there's two pools there, or there's a, there were pools there. They're kind of like hot springs, but over time what had happened is this uh, superstition had built up around it. So it's hot springs, and it would have been uh, fed by different uh, uh, places of water coming into the city, but a superstition had built up that when the waters would come into the thing, it, what was happening was an angel was coming and stirring up the waters. And as soon as the waters were stirred up, the first person to jump into the water would have miraculous healing. Now, I remember being a kid uh, and thinking that this was kind of funny. I would picture, uh, think back to the Olympics, I would picture like a, a swimming meet. And all the swimmers are on the edge of the pool waiting for the starting gun. And as soon as they hear it, they dive into the water. That's what I pictured when I was a kid, that these people were just waiting exactly for the moment that the bubbles would start and the swirls and they would dive into the water, but the scene here is not a comical one. It's not a picture of strong, able-bodied swimmers trying to win a gold medal. It's a picture of desperation and pain. It's a place where the superstition said there was a slim chance that you might get some kind of healing, but you had to time it just right. There was a possibility of some sort of mercy for you, but it remained elusive. And it depended 100% on your ability to edge other people out and get down there. It's a picture of desperation and pain. And we learn that in verse 5. We meet a man there at Bethesda, this house of shame, who's been suffering for 38 years. 38 years. And it doesn't name the exact sickness that, had, that he has. As you saw in our translation that we have in the bulletin, it says he's an invalid. And I want to make a side note here. It translates it here as he's an invalid, but in the original Greek, um, it says, rather, that he is a man who experienced infirmity for 38 years. And I know that might seem like a small division, but uh, in the way John wrote this, he was saying that this man is not identified by his weakness. He's not identified by his sickness. He's a man who's experienced infirmity for 38 years, not an invalid. Um, and that's a side point, but the way we talk about people is important. Um, and so 38 years, that's four decades. I'm 37. And so to help put your mind around this, this man had been experiencing this level of weakness where he cannot even get up since 1982. No wonder he's turned to something like this superstition at this pool. Where else is he going to turn? There weren't a lot of like, medical options at the time. I'm sure he prayed a lot. But no wonder he had turned to some kind of superstition 
his pain and his desperation. And not only that, it seems like not only has he suffered for 38 years, it seems like he's alone in his sickness. When Jesus asks him if he wants to be healed, the man replies, yes, but I have no one to help me. I have no one to help me. Now, I've heard this passage talked about by people before as if this man just didn't want to be healed. I've heard people say, you know, if he really wanted to be healed over 38 years, he would have found a way to get to the pool with be the first, and that's not the picture that we're getting. This is not a picture of uh, this man is, uh, if he really wanted to be well, he would have been. No, this is a picture of someone suffering for a long time, even in loneliness. I have no one to help me get into the pool. As he says, when I try to get in, someone goes in front of me. Not only is he alone, he's been edged out time and time again, a victim of the way of thinking that this superstition had created. Let me explain. The idea that this healing water would work if you could go in at just the right time, if you were first. You had to edge out everybody else, you had to time it just right, and you had to get in when the water stirred. Think about the picture. Even here, among people who had experienced being discarded and left by everyone else, this was a way of thinking that said only the quick only the people can get that can get there will find peace and wellness. It was a, your healing 100% depends on you and how hard you work to get there. But, but what about the man who's alone in his sickness, who has no one to help him, who's been edged out? He can't get to the water. Now, interestingly, I want to point this out, along the Gospel of John, there's been a lot of talk about water. In John chapter 2, Jesus arrives at a, uh, a wedding in Cana, and he turns water into wine. And that water was the water of cleansing related to the Jewish ceremonial law. He turns that water of cleansing into the wine of feasting. And he's pointing that the water of cleansing was always leading to God bringing his joy to be the joy of his people. God brings his life to be our life. And that water of cleansing could never uh, bring the joy it always just pointed to what God was going to do in Christ. It could never actually fully cleanse. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, where are they? They're at a well. And she starts talking about the water there at Jacob's well. She's pointing back to a sense of identity and a pride in her heritage. Her ancestor Jacob. She even says, are you greater than my ancestor Jacob? That you can give me a, a better water than this well does. And here, Jesus encounters kind of a popular superstition about the water in this pool. And he shows that it can't bring healing. It cannot bring renewal. He's exposing these false ideas. The first one is the idea that religion... That doing a lot of really good works, that water of cleansing at, at, at the wedding in Cana, will win you God's approval. The Samaritan woman, he's exposing this false idea of building her identity on some kind of heritage. That I can take pride in my last name or my background. And here, he's exposing the idea that we can make, be made well if we just try hard enough. It's kind of like the same 
one on the first one, except for here's a popular superstition. But this isn't just uh, something that we see in the Gospel of John. This way of thinking still exists, right? If you tune in to your uh, TV, most TV preachers, radio preachers, even local churches, they're going to tell you if you have enough faith, you'll be fully healed, or if you have enough faith, you'll get the money and the car you want, and the car, uh, and the house you want. And, um, if you have hardship, it's only because you have a lack of faith. Same kind of way of thinking that's going on here in the time of Jesus. It exists in our day with people who say if you're having trouble in your life, it's because God's punishing you. One of my mentors was a man who served the Lord as an ordained minister for over 50 years. In the latter part of his life, he had a, um, a debilitating sickness. Debilitating sickness. And I remember when he first got it, and they were going to doctors trying to figure out what was going on. One of his best friends, who was also a minister, came to him and said, I don't know, what sin do you have? You must have unconfessed sin if you're going through this. That was the hope that one of his best friends and a pastor speaking supposedly on behalf of God had for him. This idea that if he is going through sickness that he must be punished by God. Now that might be somebody else saying that or that might be your own heart saying that. In my own experience of struggle um, through a, a, a long season of infertility, I found that often going on in my heart. Is God punishing me? For this, people who struggle uh, with with loneliness and singleness, they experience the same thing. Is this God punishing me? This way of thinking is ingrained in our way of life. This way of thinking even exists in the way we talk about success. When we say success, a successful man or a successful woman, what do we mean? We tend to mean somebody who's knocked everybody else off the ladder to get to the top. The successful person is the person who wins the gold medal, who gets the biggest trophy, who has the most money in his bank account, the biggest yacht, whatever. But all these kinds of thinking, all these kinds of thinking are the bricks that build the houses of shame that we tend to live in. But notice this in our text today. What freed this man of his burden that he carried was not finding a way to get into the water first. What freed him wasn't just him firing a way to put his head down and try harder. It was Jesus entering into his house of shame. Jesus entering into this place of sickness. This place that the people in good society would have avoided. And it's Jesus speaking his words of life and grace to him. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. What we see here is a flicker of the power of Jesus. Now, I mentioned this last week. As uh, the Gospel of John goes along, the, the greater uh, Jesus' power is shown in greater, greater ways. You know, last week we talked about how Jesus healed a man from, uh, I think it was 16 miles away. A little boy had a fever. His dad was begging him, please help my son. Jesus speaks a word and the, the little boy comes to life. Well, here, it's not 16 miles. It's the distance of 38 years. And we see a flicker of how the word of Jesus can cause weakness to be undone in a moment. 
And what we see in this passage is this man who could not so much as move his own body to get into the pool is told to stand up, pick up his mat that he had laid on, and walk. This is a strength he would have never shown before. And here we see the healing power of Jesus on display in an instantaneous moment. Now for us, I'd like to propose that the voice of Jesus that spoke, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, is a voice that echoes, that resounds from this place here to us even today, even to this room right now. It's a voice that calls us and extends to us an invitation to walk in the newness of life that he brings. Now for most of us, for the vast majority of people in this world, it's not going to be an instantaneous moment of healing. It's not going to be we're waiting by a pool and Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk, and suddenly we can pick up this thing and we are totally renewed physically. As we said, as we talked about last week, this, this healing was a sign. It was a pointer. It was Jesus doing this remarkable thing, and it's recorded for us here in the Gospel of John, to point to what Jesus is doing for his people. Because we may not be healed in a moment right now today. But the assurance for all of us who come to Jesus in faith is that all the things that hold us bound will be done away with. Jesus is making all things new. And the promise of the resurrection is no matter how ravaged our bodies become by cancer or by diseases or by whatever disabilities we may have, we are going to live to see a day in the new creation where all that is done away with. The renewal of all things is going to include us living in the joy of seeing people that we have walked beside or seeing our own selves set free from the things that have torn us down. And so one of the joys that I look forward to, to seeing in the new creation of God is uh, people I've loved that have died a hard death Renewed in body, leaping in joy, dancing in joy. And you know, one of the things that this this healing, this sign, not this isn't ironic. I don't want to say it's ironic, but this man who was healed this day, he eventually passed away. He didn't live forever. His body failed him again. But what awaited him was not a healing that would just last for a couple of years, but a full and complete being made whole. That's what awaits all of us. We talk about that when, you know, I say the gospel is good news for the world. It's the good news that a new world is coming. That God, through Christ, is making all things new. And our delight is going to be seeing that. Our bodies not ravaged by sickness. Our minds not ravaged by mental illness. Our communities not ravaged by broken families and drugs, we are going to see our communities made new. Now, I don't know how that's going to look. I don't know exactly how that's going to look. But it's the delight of seeing God roll back the power of sin as far as the curse of sin is found. In the here and now, though, friends, we have the struggle of faith. Because our experience isn't going to be like this. I, I, I thought of this healing almost like a seeing uh, a movie and fast forward, like you see all the scenes kind of happen at once. 
For most of us, the experience of being renewed by God's Spirit, being renewed by God's grace, is something that isn't so much a moment. It's, you know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy extended cut <laughs> compared to, you know, this, uh, it took us, what, two minutes to read this passage. It's going to be 14 hours. Um, and that's how long it takes to watch the trilogy extended cut. What's pointed to us in this sign is given to us, I think, in part so that we can live in hope and not be swallowed up by the things, the struggles of this world. One theologian called Christian hope, living in hope as, quote, remembering the future. Remembering the future. We let what God has already shown us that he's doing inform our experience of the here and now. This, uh, this healing also points to a sign of greater disability. Not just a physical disability that this man experienced, but a disability that reaches to our hearts. Apart from Jesus coming into our house of shame, the fact is we would have remained bound by all the things that hold us down. We would have remained guilty of sin and rebellion against Him. In fact, Scripture speaks of it as us being, quote, dead in our sins. Spiritually dead in our sins, unable. But the grace of Jesus is one that comes to us in our house of shame and awakens us to new life. It enables us to respond to him so that even as Ephesians 2 says, faith itself is a gift given by him. So that we might be assured that us being renewed by Jesus is front to back his grace. Is front to back him coming to us and showing us his grace. And it's never a time where we are earning a paycheck. It is always grace upon grace. Jesus tells this man to pick up your mat and walk. And what we're going to see next week is that there's a fallout from this situation. Because this healing happens on the Sabbath. And we'll talk some more about the significance of the Sabbath. But this healing happens... And it's one of the things that leads the religious authorities in Jerusalem to see Jesus as an enemy. Strangely enough, his showing of mercy to this man becomes a point of contention, of deep contention, between him and the religious leaders. But I want to point to something as we're kind of closing our thoughts on this passage. I want to point out the way that Jesus becomes a witness to who, or this man becomes a witness to who Jesus is. Jesus tells him to get up, Pick up your mat, the thing you've been laying on, and walk. The way he becomes a witness to who Jesus is is by carrying the thing that he probably would have rather left behind. Here, Jesus not only heals this man physically, but he transforms his relationship to his place of shame. In a sense... This mat that the man had laid on, the place of his shame becomes the trophy that he carries to show other people, look at the power of Jesus for me. The fact is, sometimes what becomes our greatest witness to the grace and love of Jesus is the place of our greatest pain. It's the place of our greatest struggle. A lot of times, the, our deepest wounds become the pointers to what God is calling us to do. Because they're often our greatest experiences of the renewing power of God. Now we have a tendency to want to cover up the places of our struggle. 
We don't want to feel like people see us. It feels icky <laughs> when people see the things. Not just that we generically say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but when we start naming the stuff that we struggle with. We don't like that. It makes us feel weird. But a lot of times when we start naming those things and how Jesus has not just set us free in the past, but is setting us free right now and renewing us right now, it's the greatest testimony to his all-surpassing power that we read about at the very beginning in 2 Corinthians 4. In fact, let's read 2 Corinthians 4. If you've got your bulletin, um, we'll close with this. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. As I mentioned, he was experiencing great trouble. The Apostle Paul was a man who spent uh, the last few decades of his life traveling around the Roman Empire and starting new churches. And he was a man who experienced great physical disability. He talks about it later in 2 Corinthians. Um, it was a disability uh, that had sometimes landed him as just a recipient of care of these new churches he was starting. So he wasn't walking in to these cities as a very impressive... It wasn't like John Lane kicking in the door... Uh, the Apostle Paul and saying, follow me, partner, we're going to fight. I don't mean to, that's a bad impression of uh, John Wayne. But a lot of times, Apostle Paul walked into these places in great physical weakness, where he relied on other people caring for him. Not only that, he faced incredible opposition. And numerous times he was beaten by mobs and left for dead. And in the midst of his troubles, he recounts it for us later in 2 Corinthians. He says that he, he cried out to God to be freed. He calls it his, the thorn in his flesh. He cried out, please heal me. Please free me. The response of Jesus was that my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in your weakness. So with that in mind, let's read these words where he speaks about being uh, having the treasure of God's love in us as jars of clay, with that in our mind, as someone who is continuing to struggle, even as he's writing these words with troubles that he'd rather not have, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In a sense, what he's saying is the cracks in me as a jar of clay as someone who is receiving the grace of God that just keeps pouring into me, my wounds are the place where the grace of God pours out of me toward others. They're the places that God has used for His grace to leave out from me and to continue to spread. And I don't have to worry about that because the all-surpassing power is not going to run out. God's not going to stop pouring grace and suddenly we're losing too much and we don't have enough to hold on to anymore. No, what he's saying is these wounds that I don't want to have and I've begged God to take away are the places where I've seen him use me and my weakness to show the strength of his grace and the power of his gospel. Let's continue on. Look at what we read for our confession and assurance. This is what he hangs his hat on. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Why does he point to the resurrection of Jesus? Because he's saying that resurrection of Jesus is a pointer to what God's going to do with my body. No matter what I experience, 
I will be vindicated by the grace of God who will raise me and restore me and make me whole. And so I don't have to worry, even though I really want this suffering gone. I want this pain to go away. I know where this is going. And God's going to be able to cash those checks he's writing in the midst of my suffering. As he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That far outweighs them all. God will not fail us, friends. We may experience great suffering in this life, incredible suffering, but we have a pointer in Jesus. We have a pointer in Jesus to where this is going. He was raised from the dead. He was seated on high in glory and honor at the right hand of the Father. And we are seated, as the New Testament says, in Him. And that's where this is going. What awaits us is glory and honor from God. In a creation made new by Him. And so in the midst of whatever you're struggling with, if it's sickness, if it's disease, if you're struggling even with finances, if you're struggling with doubts, if you're struggling with sin, take heart. Because the God of grace that has already reached out to you in Christ is continuing to lead you to himself, to a place where all things are made new. A place where you will get up and carry your mat and walk and testify to the surpassing power of Jesus.